Okay. Good morning, Alex. How are you today? I'm good. I'm kind of cold. I thought you really hit your stride in the last podcast, Alex. Yeah, I peaked. This is the flu episode. It always drove me nuts when people came to the office sick, even pre-COVID. I, I felt like redeemed by COVID. Now I actually wear a mask when I'm going to go somewhere where I know there's going to be sick people. That's why I'm going to Miami on Tuesday. There's no masks. There's thongs and maskless people everywhere. Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting newsletter, and I'm joined each week by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. This week, we're discussing second-order impacts. In general, we as humans are not great at seeing second-order impacts of decisions. Part of the problem is because how things turn out is often frustratingly outside of our control, and more often than not, quite different than we expected. I would argue the media business for the past decade plus has been living at the mercy of decisions made by technology companies. Running a publishing business has been not unlike being a protagonist in a zombie movie. You just deal with whatever comes at you as best you can. The current second order impacts publishers are facing appear dire and arguably more complex than ever. Tech has grown to such a powerful force that we're in the midst of a very big societal conversation about how much power technology companies have and whether and how to curtail that power. That conversation is happening through regulation and legislation, an inherently messy process that tends to drive business people nuts, but also seems preferable to violence in organizing a society. But just consider two areas of focus right now, consumer privacy and AI. Now the move to rein in the use of consumer data and the hodgepodge of regulations that have sprung up after the implementation of GDPR in 2016 are still being felt. And I don't I think it's too early to say exactly the impact any of these regulations have had, and I understand the skepticism that Troy has as far as GDPR goes. And I think the hand-wringing over AI is going to lead to an amazing number of second-order impacts for publishers that we're just beginning to contemplate. But it's also yet another reminder, and it's a frustrating one, that publishers have of the many ways that they have lost control of their businesses. It is hard to diligently work towards a stable and sustainable business model. And the ground beneath you continues to shift and sometimes open up and sets loose hordes of ravenous zombies. This week, we discuss the second order effects of the media business arising from these twin external developments privacy regulations, and the explosion of AI tools. Next week, we'll contemplate the changing nature of creativity in the face of great change coming not just to distribution and monetization, but now to the actual creation process. I think it is actually going to be a positive, but you know, we'll get to that next week. Optimism will have to wait for one more week. Thank you to everyone who has left a uh, rating and review of this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you in particular this week to Dylan Bowman, who gave the show five stars and said, quote, as a new media founder with no relevant experience, I've learned a ton from the show and the rebooting. Thank you very much, Dylan, especially since you gave a shout out to the rebooting show, which you should all tune into. Every week I interview someone who's operating a sustainable media business. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Troy, isn't this a big change in that you try to operate a business where 
a lot of of what is happening is being done to your business just sort of by accident in some ways. It's sort of like publishing, sadly, is a bit of a kind of perpetual hackathon. You know, you're always looking for the next vein in this kind of pockmarked drug addict arm to try to find like a, a new source of revenue. It, you know, I thought about it a couple of times this week. I thought about it when I saw this Vice thing. They had to take a $30 million lifeline to keep the business going. And I remember seeing that there was a bunch of creditors that appeared in the list that hadn't been paid. And one of them was this company. I think I met the guy before. Anyway, it just made me think, oh my God, this is what digital media is because Vice owes him money, presumably because as a way to get reach on a campaign or distribute their videos or something. They had done a deal with Ranker to buy unnatural distribution to satisfy a campaign and ended up owing him money. His site, you know, is a bit of a hack of sorts. I mean, I think it provides a service to people. Hey, that to, are you coming after some... Ranker this early? No, in I'm the, not coming after Ranker. It's, it's got nothing to do with Ranker. It's sort of like the desperation of publishers looking for a way to make money have to do deals with companies like Ranker and then end up owing them money. Is just one in a long line of stories in publishing about the dance you have to do to make money. And then it got me What's going, Ranker? if you really, Ranker is a thing where you rank shit. See, I like straightforward <laughs> branding, you know, like in Miami, they do this, it, like the pizza place is called I Love Pizza. The liquor store is called I Love Liquors. The brunch place is called I Love Brunch. Rankers about Rankers. I had a startup <laughs> that I did when I was very young. I don't know if you know it, Troy. It was called Listicky. And it was, about making, it was about making lists. And it's essentially Ranker. You yeah, could have been have Clark Benson. In a different life, you would be Clark. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Anyway. But you know what it got me thinking about just to bring the conversation back to second order consequences and all that stuff. It was uh, my wife's birthday last week and I went to a, a shop in Soho to buy her a gift. And this always happens in retail, particularly kind of personal, fancy, swaggy uh, retail. They ask you for your name so they can look up your your profile in their database and look at your purchase history and all that stuff. It always annoys me for some reason. I, I just want to buy a sweater. I, I don't want to be profiled. Wow. This is male and, energy, severe male energy. Oh, so be it. And I was, you know, there were these young hip kids and I started going into this rant, not like crazy person rant, but like a little bit of an, it was partly an internal dialogue and partly external, but it was like, you have my name, my address, my credit card information, my email, like literally you could completely dissect my life if you were even mildly enterprising. And I, I don't really care, but it's annoying to me. And yet we're worried through this crazy set of legislation that started in Europe around 2011 that ended up in GDPR. We're worried about cookies and the violation of privacy that are cookies. And I just think that it's, it's, I, I did this crazy thing, which I think we could probably do on this podcast is start to connect that ineptitude to what is about to become the next order of ineptitude around AI and regulation around AI and platform policy around AI. Because here's really what happened with GDPR. A bunch of fucking websites and commerce companies had to put buttons on their sites that consumers don't understand that involve some illusion of a trade-off around you giving people consent to use your data. And I don't think that there's a person on the planet that ever reads any of the small text and just clicks the button to get it out of their way. Literally the most ridiculous, stupid policy I've ever seen. And the cluttered interfaces that were already too cluttered, but just let me go, please, because uh, I'm, I'm ranting now. Uh, I know. Uh, and, then, and then what it did 
is it created a whole new expense line for publishers that had to navigate this thing, introduced yet another new sort of tapeworm of a category called consent management platforms that then got in between you and your customer and tried to build like ad networks off of consent management or at least data brokerages off of that. And then what I think it even did beyond that is it, 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 it hastened the development of retail media because, God damn it, the only thing that you have as a publisher in a modern kind of performance marketing setting was an ability to turn low-value impressions into high-value impressions by moving data from one place, say the signal of you visiting a commerce site, to your presence on a publishing property. That was largely called for them for just purposes of this conversation called retargeting. And now that was under siege because, oh God, we can't use the cookie to retarget someone. Oh my God, that's a violation of privacy, which then I think advantaged retail networks who could then more clearly and in a first party manner, take your data and sell it to the marketplace and take all of the kind of intent money in, in the internet, really letting the air out of the online advertising balloon, which has resulted in a lot of chaos. Wow. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> that was a great opening statement. Alex, I want to get to you because you're the resident European and this is a European thing. You guys voices on this on, on, a, on the rest of the world, mostly because you lost completely like a generational big L in technology. And so Europe does what Europe does best, which is regulate. Regulatory superpower comes muscling in with some impenetrable I mean, these are the people who brought us the, a key communitaire. So it's it's unsurprising that uh, they would regulate in this manner. Are you opposed to the actual purpose of these privacy regulations? Because I think there are, I, w- I don't want to say extremists. A lot of people are saying extremists. There, there are people who take the position that are, is completely laissez-faire and that there is no problem with privacy, at least when it comes to the provision of digital advertising, that this is all a tempest in a teapot at best. Are you asking me? Uh, are you asking me, the resident <laughs> European? If I'm a, yeah, well, I'm let, a, let me go to I, Troy. Let me go to I Troy think, because I don't, I, I think Troy laid out a very good gaze on specifics. Troy might need to catch a breath. Let me just talk yeah, about Yeah, that's true. That's true. He, got, he got pretty heated. And I have a cold, so I'm not going to be talking as much, but I want to I get this out of the way. I think GDPR <laughs> is, is a good idea with a bad execution. It kind of promotes a bad UX and it, it benefits people who have dark patterns. So the more complicated that form is, the more people go there. Yeah, whatever. Fucking just take my data. Right? They just like click on the data, whatever. And, and so what it's created, it's like it, it's made the internet, the, the web even worse. And I will never forgive it for that. But what I was wondering is why did they put that burden on all the businesses and all the small businesses rather than putting it into the browser? Does anybody know that? It always baffled me. Because the browsers wouldn't, wouldn't succumb. You think that's it? Yeah. Of course you have to do it through the browser. It's the only way to do it. You have to either do it through the browser or the OS, but they couldn't. I mean, yeah, you have to do it at one of those levers, layers, and they couldn't push Apple around and they couldn't push Google around. So they just created a bunch of legislation that hoodwinked all the poor publishers and commerce companies to put the stupid authentication mechanism on top of websites. That's what happened. It's a disaster. So Troy, would you be in favor of this if the burden was shifted to the people actually on the browsers and can actually... I don't think cookies are a problem, quite frankly. Cookies are fine. And if you want to dump your cookie, dump your cookie. Or if you want to create a better mechanism for people to understand what's in their cookie and dump their cookie, then do that. But, you know, 
The act of anonymously following someone with a little file on your computer that makes the internet a whole lot better from a service perspective, from an ad targeting perspective, from a utility sure. perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And now look what we did. We created <laughs> Flock, Flock as a replacement. Yeah, what is Some that? Federated, other weird... federated learning, Some... something cohorts, fe federated. I, I used to have to edit these stories on Flock. I would zone out in the middle of, of editing. <laughs> but some mechanism that basically, once again, concentrated all the power with the owner of that touch point, right? Because all the segmentation data was going to be owned by Google in a way, by the way, that consumers had no idea how they got in a segment or what to do about it. And that replaced the humble little cookie. And that was the solution because yeah. a bunch of European regulators that didn't understand the internet set out know. to fix it. And it's about to happen again. You sound like Randall Rothenberg here. God bless Randall Rothenberg. I love that guy. <laughs> he would always he would always get up on like his soapbox. You ever see that meme of the guy who's like sitting at a card table and is like, prove me wrong or whatever? I think that was Randall's like, cookies are great. Prove me wrong. Democracy will end. Weirdly, democracy didn't end. I find uh, that guy, very, he's really thoughtful. And I was the chairman of the IAB and I got to know him really well. And, oh, uh, so you're, you've got a dog in this fight because here's my quick little take on, on GDPR. The industry never took privacy seriously. They never even thought it should exist. They always really subscribe to and the mainstream thinking was privacy is dead. Get over it. I think I forget who either said that probably Winston Churchill because of that. And because of, of this overly complicated system that was architected and it was architected for a reason. And it provided plausible deniability to all kinds of characters, scurrilous and otherwise that people lost trust. We talk a lot about trust. So yeah, the, the humble cookie, like who, who did the cookie harm? The problem really comes back to trust. There are too many middlemen that exist in, in this ecosystem. There's a lot of people who have been collecting a lot of data that do not have a relationship with the consumers. So I feel for publishers that have been caught up in this, and particularly the long tail, smaller publishers, et cetera. Hey, hey Brian, what was the consequence of all of that? What, what happened to the consumer and to the, the sort of principal players in the ecosystem? Of what? Of GDPR. Oh, the biggest impact to me that GDPR has had, tangible impact outside of moving some pieces around the board, has been that it forced an industry to actually take privacy, quote unquote, seriously. I don't think they truly have. If you listen to what the IEB is going on about now, even post-Randall, it's still in denial, if you ask me, because I think for right. years, I've, I have talked, let me just finish, when I've talked about privacy with people in this industry, they've said basically two things, and this is over like 15 years. They said the direct mail guys are sketchier, and we don't use PII, okay? And that they repeated that for a decade. And they never PI took self-regulation, personally identifiable information. So they parse the idea that it's personal information and some legalistic definition of what is personal that, that doesn't line up with what a lot of normal people consider personal information. And because of that, it created a system where if I ask people in a room of advertisers, how many of you think that Facebook is listening to you through the phone? A majority of hands go up. These are the sophisticated people in advertising. There's a trust issue. I think that's the root problem. The sort of race to accumulate cookies transition to a race to accumulate e email addresses and to create barriers, fake or otherwise, to accessing information on the internet and a whole underground trade in swapping email addresses 
that opened up more user information to the people in the middle and oh, yeah. did nothing to ultimately protect your privacy. I just think it was entirely and utterly ineffective. I, too, I don't really it's know. It's still too early. It's still too early to say. Really? <laughs> I, I think so, I, yeah. It's not too early to say, and here's why. Because I think that it contributed to the demise of digital media. And it is today. Okay. Because you it's harder, like and harder and harder to make a buck off of online advertising on account of the collapse of the mechanism that created value in and around the impression that was the result of all of this legislation. And what you're seeing is the fallout now. You're seeing companies that can't stay in business. You're seeing job loss. You're seeing all the. Now, obviously, you can't draw a straight line between these two things, but it's just not getting easier. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah, about the, to get a whole lot harder absolutely. because I think we should open the next chapter of but wait, the, the batter the batter ad business was just going gangbusters. So let's let's remember that it like hastened the demise of a form of digital media that frankly was pretty tired. And I agree with you, but I actually think the the business was eating itself already. Like that yeah. thing was unsustainable. And to Brian's trust comment, I think people stopped trusting these things, and so it left an opening for well-meaning but like totally incompetent bureaucrats to make up a set of rules that broke everything but the thing was already broken and there's that seo loop with massive ad networks and the fucking tabula links and uh, rankers and uh, things that send you into a list and not being able to find information everybody was getting sick and fucking tired of the internet so yes i'm sorry it destroyed advertising but also fuck advertising for destroying the internet you know it was one parasite eating another parasite and to <laughs> work and maybe it's yeah. because I still remember early, early 2000s, late 90s internet full of promise and useful energy before it was like stuck full of these fucking the last of us fungus growing out of its face. Fine, we unleashed a bunch of lizards to eat the mushroom off of the internet's face. Great. And sorry for the people selling mushrooms on faces. I just want to state again for the record, I don't know how Ranker got pulled into all of this. I'll give you sure a chance either. to respond, Troy. <laughs> Well, Poor ranker. What is it? They're just ranking. I just feel like we're about to see it happen all over again. And this time it's more profound, Brian. Well, and I know because this has societal, bigger societal implications than the cookie. The cookie. Listen, I spent the weekend reading all of the AI stuff. I couldn't even produce an email because if I, I wanted to talk about AI, but I didn't want to compete with all the nonsense out there. So I needed to really digest it all and really try to come up with a point of view. And the obvious starting point for this is that I still believe won't get caught up in, in the kind of, oh my God, look what we got the AI robot to say when we pushed it into the semantic corner like Ben Thompson did or Roos at the New York Times. It's like, you can't really QA the thing that has that many use cases. My little cute example is my parents tried to QA me for like 12 years and they didn't get all the corner cases. But uh, <laughs> I'm just going to pause for a minute. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that was good. Thank you. But anyway, uh, we're now sensing the opportunity to kind of carve our place in this new frontier and Bing releases, Microsoft releases an AI bot that's not quite thought through like it ever will be because it's it's unpredictable then they start to contain the number of queries at five so that you don't pin it down with your questions it's kind of humorous all of it all of that but here's the thing i would start with the idea that this isn't going to put just put more pressure downstream from search engines is ludicrous oh, yeah. okay so listen old search 
is as follows. Query and response. The query is what you type into the search engine. The response is a page. Now, the most lucrative of that, because we robbed the internet of all of its cookie-based intent data, the most lucrative of that of those queries are affiliate-based queries. I want a TV. I give you a well-formatted page on Tom's Guide or CNET or whatever to tell you what TV to buy. So that's the most lucrative use case on the internet today. Now, what we're about to do is shit can the whole thing because we're going to suck that response into the engine. And what Microsoft is saying, and I think with good intent, because they're so excited about the opportunity of this new frontier where they could actually compete with Google, is they're saying, don't worry about it. We'll put citations and links in this. We will crossbreed like some incestuous shithole. We will crossbreed search. And so your responses are hyperlinked and we have these citations. And don't worry providers of information that support a commercial query. Don't worry we are going to still get traffic to you. And guess what? It's just not going to happen. Yeah, but it's also ancillary, right? I think like what, you know. Ancillary to what? Well, the point of all of this is for Microsoft to bleed Google's cash cow, right? I mean, for years, and that's why I think it's a second order impact in that publishers to me have for over a decade been like, I always compare them to the villagers in like Game of Thrones. So you've got different houses that decide to go to war, the Starks against like the Lannisters. And all these poor villagers, they're never really focused on in the stories, but they're the ones who are getting lit on fire. Whereas the real action, it's just these houses going up against each other. And so I think we'll end up seeing that. And publishers, unfortunately, will get caught in the crossfire because this is about Google trying to go after the gross margins of search business that sustain Google. And at the end of the day, if others die because of that, they're going to die because of it. Yeah, it's just it's kind of sad to me. And maybe I shouldn't be saddened by it because, as you would say, Brian, the market will respond and find new nooks and crannies to monetize. And, you know, enterprising individual creators will make beautiful, soulful things and people will appreciate (laughs) them and all of that. But here's the thing. We put a new layer on information with search and social. And the internet forces this kind of consolidation of access points onto information. And it happened the first time. And what it did is it marginalized content creators and took away distribution power from them. That happened the first time. And it's about to happen all over again. And this time, the results will be more pernicious and more profound. Because you can look at, I don't care whether AI is sentient or not, or on its way to being sentient, or whether it cannot absorb symbolic logic such that it feels like common sense and is just this photocopy of reality. By the way, that brilliant New Yorker article, Mm -hmm. which you should all read, kind of outlined. But what it really is, is it's automation. And as such, it's adding a layer of automation to this interface point that we discussed last week that is Mm -hmm. only going to continue to shift power from creators of content to owners of access points. And in that, just like what happened with the GDPR, it's going to favor the people that can manage those access points most ably, and it's going to just have negative downstream effects on the creators of content. Yeah. So it's not a new story. It's just a new chapter to the same story. Well, the story has been that media and technology have had this romance and 
technology keeps breaking media's heart and media keeps falling back in love with technology and then technology takes another piece away from it. But isn't it the case, Troy, maybe, I don't know, I find this term media sometimes difficult to wrap my head around. Is media the definition of a company that owns a little bit of content creation, distribution and advertising and monetization around it? Is that how you would define a media company? I know that's, yeah, that's like a, a good- baby question. We should actually turn that into well, a, a feature of the podcast. Baby question. <laughs> oh, no, I thought it was like, is it media? <laughs> I think one of the second order impacts actually of AI is going to be that technology companies are going to have to stop claiming that they're not media companies because they're creating content. They're using robots to create content and they can't hide behind the fact that, oh, we don't create content. We just point to content. No, 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 no. You're absolutely okay. It was always bullshit. Well, like, it, it for sure is going to create new dimensions to the policy battle around uh, yeah, Section, Section 230, 230 sure. and all. I look at it as very exciting because there's going to be so much shit to write about. <laughs> Nobody's going to pay you for it, though. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's the, well, that's the second order impact I haven't gotten to. Brian's <laughs> excited about writing free content for the machines. Sorry, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Alex, you had a baby question. So, so my baby question was, we're looking at the, the impact of this new phase of technology on media once again. And I'm wondering if it's maybe the end of the media company where there are only going to be people who create content and then the platforms that surface it to users. And it might also be the end of the traditional advertising models where that doesn't make any sense anymore. I think we're just seeing the end of it. This might be the end of the traditional media company and media as a term, because at the end of the day, I don't think there's an analog, but I'm trying to find one. Maybe it's just the end of that model where there's this kind of you know, spin wheel effect on you from people making content and then you put them on a platform. And then because you're the one that could afford the printing press, and then you're the one that could afford the CMS, and then you're the one that could afford the whatever else, right? Yeah. And that, who needs those guys? Well, first yeah. of all, I just need to state the obvious, Brian. That doesn't feel like a baby <laughs> question to me. Ah, <laughs> oh, he turned that on you. I mean, there's a good case to be made that a lot of the functions of that you needed to be a publisher have now been like taken away. And in some ways, to me, that's why it can be li- liberating because you see, I think a lot of the second order stuff that people are going to with this AI is actually fourth and fifth order and it goes to, are they going to take over? Is it sentient? Can we get it to say that the Holocaust didn't exist and stuff like that? I, I think that's in some ways a little silly and cheap. You know, the machines do all sorts of stupid yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. You push them in the wrong direction. Can I ask a baby question of my own? Yeah. I was at a party on Saturday night and there was this great woman who was there who was asking me some media questions, baby media questions. And she was a celebrity from HGTV who had her own brand and trust with her audience and is, was really just kind of a creative person, like wanted to make media. And so she and this other friend of mine had endeavored to make some packaged media in the form of a printed thing. A very beautiful printing thing. And they said to me, you know, what do we do now? What do we do? We got this cool idea. You know, people know us. We have lots of taste. We have a kind of a magazine thing. What do we do to make our dreams come true? We need to create a media company. What would your response be to them, to that baby question, Brian? Don't do it. Well, that can't be a response, though. Mary, can we set up a grand rule for our podcast that we can never tell people not to do something? 
just well i don't think it's a good idea to create a media business that was the thing so like why do you have to so before i think just to go on what you were saying alex was that in order to be in media you needed to create a, a media business and that meant all sorts of different things and infrastructure and stuff there is a different path now that i think is interesting i don't think i think there's going to be in between but that you don't need to build up all of that. She doesn't need to build an entire infrastructure of a media business to be in media. We see so many people, the most powerful media entities are that are being developed are not quote unquote traditional media businesses. So just focus on the creation of the content. The idea of pursuing a print magazine product. Now, I don't mean to say don't do it. Go ahead, do it. I hope you have another source of income though. It's not a business. After I say that, then what do I say? What is the value that is being created here? And how can you capture some of that value? I think the idea of creating a packaged product like a magazine, particularly around food or lifestyle, I think is probably not going to be a very sustainable endeavor. So let's maybe we just start just for fun to kind of lay out quickly what her options would be. Okay. So option one would be to make the publication so deliriously good that somewhere north of 20,000 people would pay a hundred bucks a year for it, for a quarterly publication, let's say. Keep the printing run very low, keep the product very premium, and then endeavor from there to go out and build your brand. Option two, get TV production deals, create lots of content on the platforms that matter, and try to become a notable for your voice inside of that lifestyle industry that you're pursuing. And then option three would be to create a commerce extension of this so you were selling draperies and pillows and olive oil and sofas and shit at a high enough gross margin that you could afford to do all the things that you need to do like advertise and do fulfillment and build a business so those are kind of your choices i guess right yeah i mean you can create i guess my point is that like you need to figure out a business that is different than the media product itself I think when you're looking at these lifestyle categories, it seems to me pretty obvious that all of them, the fate outside of the SEO stuff, and even then they're a front end for a dip, for an affiliate business, is that the media product itself is the front end for a different business. Like whether that's selling pots and pans, you know, whether that's... Can, can I ask you why? Why? Yeah, because why? It's ex- the, the economics just simply don't work. Why? For like a print magazine product? Oh, print ma- digital magazine, print magazine, email newsletter, you know, video series. Why? Because you're not going to get enough people to pay you. And it's either you get pe- the audience to pay or you get advertisers to pay. And advertising as a model is obviously, we talk about it all the time, is incredibly challenged. There's just so many choices out there for advertisers. Why would they spend money on this versus retail media? I mean, some will spend some on it, but it's not a very... I don't see a lot of people starting magazines that it can be super niche, possibly, but usually it's the front end to a different business. So that whole category is just gone. Goodbye. No, I just think it changes. Well, define the category. You mean the whole category? What? What do you mean? I mean, the category of creating content that might sit somewhere between a high value subscription proposition and something that people are mildly interested in that delivers content against an enthusiast category or some type of broad lifestyle category or even news for that matter. Either it has a density and and value proposition to become subscription or it's sober. You have to find a new gig. Yeah, I think maybe any type of content that is created essentially to position and add into it to position itself next to advertising specifically is 
potentially gone. I just wanted to articulate the finality of this conversation. So it's good. We can now set that up as a sort of precept for the whole podcast that that type of media is dead yeah but it's it's hard to tell because i was watching this video which we'll put in the show notes by this i think british guy he's called tom scott he was talking about ai and the sigmoid curve the sigmoid curve being where you are in technology curve and whether or not ai if it's at the end of its curve right now what we're seeing we're like oh this is a cool thing and it'll change search and there will be second order effects but things won't change dramatically. If it's in the middle of the curve, it's, wow, we still got a lot of changes coming our way. If it's at the beginning of its curve, we have no idea what the fuck's going to happen. So I actually don't know what happens when you give a tool to everyone in the chain, including people who are in the business of inventing ad products, in the business of building platforms, coders, designers, publishers, content makers. When you give them a set of technologies that amplifies their ability to make stuff. Like Brian right now, you as a single person could run, technically if we set it up, like if you and I sit down for a week and we set it up, I can put together, you know, you'll have a research team that's AI, you'll have a bunch of managers that are AI, and you can be a one-person small media company overnight, right? And I don't know what that changes. Maybe you can write seven newsletters instead of one. And I don't know how the ad people, specifically Google and folks at Bain, create new advertising products that completely change the game and insert advertising into the conversation channels. I don't know. Do you know what I think we're going to end up seeing on that? This is sort of like an aside. Do you remember Vibrant Media? Troy, you do. (laughs) They were an an ad network that would scan text and do the double green underlines under like keywords. So they were bringing search ads to, yeah, they were, it was like early, oh, you know, search is the only basically like ad format that is like really working on the internet. We're going to bring this to all of these under monetized pages and we're going to create new inventory because when you like accidentally moused over Ford truck in like an article, all of a sudden would pop up a video for a Ford truck. Oh yeah, I remember those. And they quickly became like a scourge. I remember like some people felt really strongly. I think we're actually going to see a return of the, of the double green underline. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for it. I don't know. I wonder, because now we're like in this kind of arms race between a bunch of tech giants. I think there's going to be the scorched earth policy to build the best product that people want to use, even though it kills the advertising revenue and, and potentially kills relationships with publishers. I think they're also hungry to take you know, there's like a land grab happening. It might take a while for for that experience to become shit, which usually means there's like- Oh, no, 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 no. I think the ironclad rule of digital media is that everything ends up becoming shit because it becomes overdone and becomes over-optimized, right? I mean, the pop under ad would have been with us to this day if it didn't get shut down externally. Yeah. So I, I, just, I always like that always, I, I guess for me, like I always am, am reminded of that kind of stuff because, you know, inevitably anything that gets taken away out of the toolbox, the monetization toolbox, I've always heard all of the sky is falling stuff and the sky has never completely fallen. Let's look at it from the other side, right? So we're looking at distribution, advertising. I just think that there's going to be a lot of really great content. Okay. I mean, yes. <laughs> He's what is he's doing that thing again? for a second. I, I, I think that's, <laughs> let me start again. Let me start again. I think can you hear me again? Yeah. Yeah, you gotta stop moving around because it's taxing your bandwidth. All right. I think that there's just going to be more really high quality content because people are going to have a lot of access to tools, a lot of access to resources, and a lot more time to focus on creating these great things. And I think that's also going to create second order effects where 
there's just going to be more competition from great content. Yeah. I just think there's but going it, to be a ton of it. I'm going to make a case here, Troy, that a lot of the things you're talking about here are basically publishers had a lot of unfair advantages that have been stripped away from them over decades at this point. And this is just the sort of like final stripping away of all of the unfair advantages that publishing businesses have had in the market. We've seen this, that like competing, if you're in the lifestyle category, competing with creators and influencers has been a challenge. I mean, there's different economics and this accelerates that. Like I just see, like Alex was saying, with, with these tools, you can see pretty clearly a pathway that there have been a lot of advantages, infrastructure advantages from publishers and media companies that are going to be stripped away. Part of me is, well, that's very exciting because I'm not sitting in a publishing business <laughs> that needs to support that infrastructure. You know, it reminds me, I think you're probably right, but it reminds me, I maybe have shared this on the podcast before, but I used to go to China and talk to the teams that oversaw like the L brand or the Bazaar brand. And China was an influencer economy in the media category long before North America was. They would say to me through a translator, Troy, you know, wh what do we do about these influencers? Because, you know, they have mo more followers than us and, you know, luxury brands want to give them money and we're struggling to compete. And I would try to be thoughtful with in my answer and give them a reason to believe. And I would say, well, it looks like we just have to be far more influential and we have to embrace the sort of influencer class by wrapping our brand around, them. which has been, a, I think, a response for companies in the publishing business, whether they built a platform to manage influencers or started to incorporate them into their content feeds or just tried to be kind of native to the medium and be more influential themselves. It's all great, except that it's a war and you're never going to win it because there's too many of them. I think that what history would say there is I was totally wrong or naive and that there was really no way to kind of hijack that segment of the content creator spectrum. The influence and kind of bandwidth of your media brand was just going to atrophy. Yeah. And but I mean, the immediate response, a hollow sh shell for fucking affiliate. But the immediate response that makes complete sense, right? I mean, in, in the short term to medium term, publishers do still have an unfair advantage, right? They have an unfair advantage in that they have, they still have distribution, but they also still have these relationships with brands and the trust within brands, right? So they can become, I think I called it in one newsletter, like a cultural general contractor where, you know, and the general contractors, they're, they're not coming in, they're not like doing, like putting up the drywall and stuff like this, but they're bringing in others to do all that. And I, you see a lot of publishers becoming that, that general contractor. Yeah. That's what Brian Goldberg wants to become. We should have him on, by the way. Should, maybe yeah. the, the smoke is clear. <laughs> You know, it's time for to get Brian on here to talk about general um, contracting. I was in The Last of Us last night. I don't know if you guys are watching that that show because I think publishing is is pretty much in that situation of, you know, the zombies just keep coming. And, you know, you start to get used to it. I see it with the characters. They're like, oh, okay. You know, a bunch of zombies are attacking us again. The guy was like, you know, people love contractors. <laughs> it's true. I remember that was last night. That was great. Yeah. yeah, the contractor comes in and, you know, he or she, usually it's a he, is I got this under control. I got you. <laughs> It's reassuring. We're a little all over the place this week. But we let's, were, let's... and we we apologize because it was a little last minute. But Brian, before we do good product, 
Where did we start and where did we end? I think that's important. Well, we started with the second order impacts and we talked about second order impacts of both privacy, but then also AI. And I think the big, to me, the big like takeaway, if there is like a big takeaway is publishing is downstream of a lot of forces, far powerful media in general, far powerful than the industry itself. It's always been at the whims of the broader economy because of its dependent on advertising and advertising is always the first to get cut in a downturn. But I think more than ever, there's just a lack of control of these businesses, right? Like an affiliate, I remember talking with you about this, like affiliate was one way that publishers felt like they got some control back of their businesses because they were able to control a lot of things with that. And now that's getting taken away. So it's, you know, the zombies keep coming. (laughs) That's my big takeaway. That's great. Thank you for that. It's good and a good product. In our haste to put this together, I hadn't really thought of a good product, though I always do these days. I don't know about this one, but let's give it a shot. You know, it's funny. It's Monday. The great thing about Mondays, unlike what the Boomtown Rats said years ago. <laughs> Boomtown Rats. That one should not like them. Is it Mondays, like the subways, are empty. And Well, it's a holiday you- today, Troy. Is it a holiday? Yeah, it's President's Day. Oh, right, right. We don't have that. We don't have presidents in Canada. Maybe I forgot that. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, there's no one in the office. And I really do. I was reminded today that snacks in the office, which I feel like it's ending. Oh, yeah. Snacks in the, they have these reconstituted mango strips in a nice little package. And I really like them, but that's not my good product this week. Snacks in the office is a good product, though. It is. I mean, it is they were, product. it was a good product. Former RIP. You know, one thing I really like on my block in Brooklyn is. There were some houses that still have gas-powered lamps in front of the brownstones. And just immediately in front of the brownstone, you'll have a light, but it's powered by gas. It runs 24-7. And I'm led to believe that it actually is a small amount of fuel that makes it run. But when you're walking down the street in the evening and there's houses lit by flame, it's very romantic and it makes you really appreciate your urban existence. Mm. And I think that's a good product. I think more people should have those kinds of lamps in front of their house. Yeah, I don't think that's going to like work in like a decarbonized uh, economy. It's unfortunate. We got to sacrifice some things, and you're going to have to sacrifice your decay. fossil fuels for a cozy world. Okay. That's I mean, great. You know what I like to do? I just like to pour gasoline on the ground and just settle it. You know what's a good product? Natural gas. <laughs> I feel like I failed there. <laughs> No, you you cannot. You can try. You can never fail a good product because it's a very personal. It's quality. It's a very personal choice. Yeah, it's quality. Before we end the section, do you have a good product, Alex? Maybe a baby (laughs) good product or something that you that you've run across that tickled your fancy. I'm in LA right now, and I think LA is a good product. Also in the line, I think it's just no one. No one has ever said that before. I like. I like. It's definitely not a good product. I like LA a lot, but I don't think it's a good product. I think it's kind of a beautiful mess of all the things and there's this energy here that's a mixture of creativity and desperation which uh, kind of creates this whole energy and uh, the weather's great and the sunsets are amazing and as a kid who grew up watching Hollywood movies it's kind yeah. of you know a yeah. massive Disney world full of references to culture and it feels like a cultural mecca I always like coming down here classic American city let's leave it there on LA and natural gas as our uh, good products of the week alright guys 
Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I like that. Remember when we used to make Venn diagrams? I really liked that. What was it? Desperation intersecting. Creativity and des- creativity. Hollywood is in the middle or LA is in the middle. I like that one.